All right, welcome to session two of our commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. In our first session, we looked at the backstory, the situation behind the letter, what motivated it, and what Paul is really doing in the letter. In this session, by way of introduction, we want to give an overview of the letter and then just offer some tips for reading Romans well. That's motivated because Romans is an incredibly big book, and so as you work down through it, if you don't have a sense of the map, the lay of the land, you can get lost really easily. You can forget how things fit together. You're, you can lose track of the overall flow of thought. And so I want to give you an overview to at least help you have sort of a big picture view of the book and how the whole book works so that as you read it, you don't get lost. And then because there's really, I think, been some misunderstanding of what the book is primarily about, I want to give you some tips for reading it well here in the second half of this recording. All right, so let's start with an overview of the letter to Romans. Romans is composed of four big chunks, and obviously whenever you break down a book like this, you're oversimplifying, and so this is a bit of an oversimplification because some of those chunks overlap with each other, but by and large, there are four big chunks in the letter to the Romans. Chapters 1 through 4, chapters 5 through 8, chapters 9 through 11, and chapters 12 through 16. Those are the four parts of the letter. In chapters 1 through 4, Paul introduces himself and his ministry in the first little bit, saying that his ministry's goal is to establish the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, and really highlighting that that's the focus of his ministry. And since there's a large percentage of Gentile Christians in the church at Rome, it means that they're within the sphere of his ministry. So he introduces himself and his ministry to them. And then in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, Paul really gives the thesis statement for the entire letter. We need to make sure we understand verses 16 and 17 that way. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 reads like this. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We'll spend plenty of time on that section here in a future recording, but that really is the thesis to the letter, and the whole rest of the letter, in some regards, is an explanation of that sentence, or drawing out an implication of that sentence. It's really that sentence sets the tone, shape, and direction of the whole letter. From chapter 1, verse 18 through uh, 32, then, Paul shows how the whole pagan world stands under God's just condemnation because of their rejection of God, their rebellion against his way of life, and thus they stand condemned. Picking up in chapter 2, then, Paul shows how really a Jew, and maybe even a good moral Gentile, also stands under condemnation, that they too have sinned, and thus they also are guilty before God. They are going to suffer the curse of the law. And so if if the Jewish people think they have any advantage simply by being the Jewish people, if they are right before God simply because they have the Torah, Paul says, well, no, that's not the case. The Torah didn't advantage you in being right before God. And thus, Paul then expands the thesis statement in chapter 3, verses 21 and following by saying that the righteousness of God is now manifested apart from the law and the prophets, and it's done so through Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. And then Paul goes on in chapter 4 to say this is in keeping with the whole story of the Old Testament, that the promise to Abraham 
uh, was that God would ultimately bring Abraham's seed into the world and make the world right and reverse the curse through Abraham and his seed. And it would be on the basis of faith, just like with Abraham, that he was justified by virtue of faith. And so Paul lays that out in chapter 4, showing that how all the nations, that is the Gentiles, would be blessed through his descendant and that Abraham received this promise apart from the Torah by faith. Um, that he wasn't circumcised when the promise was given. And so he's the father of anybody who believes, both Jew and Gentile. Notice that, that sometimes we miss that, that both Jew and Gentile part. But that's really important for where Paul is going in the letter, as we explained in the backstory, that it is by faith, apart from Torah, um, based on the Messiah and in the Messiah. That's how justification works. With that, then, Paul turns to the second major chunk of the letter, chapters 5 through 8. And the first few verses, that first paragraph of chapter 5, is sort of like a transitional paragraph, wrapping up the themes of 1 through 4, preparing for the themes of 5 through 8. But here in chapters 5 through 8, what Paul wants us to know is this. He, in, in short, he says that even though it's by faith and not by Torah-keeping, um, that people are put into a right relationship with God doesn't mean that life is a moral free-for-all, that we can do whatever we, we want, live however we want, continue in sin, and still be the people of God. No, he says in chapter 6, we died to sin, and we've been therefore set free from sin. Now we have the Spirit of God, which provides a more effective means of transforming us into the very people that God wanted us to be in the first place. And so the message of chapter 6 through 8 is that through Christ and through the Spirit, the problem of sin, death, and condemnation that was brought into the world by Adam and then carried on by the rest of us humans, that problem of sin, death, and condemnation has been taken care of in Jesus and the Spirit. So by the time you get to the end of chapter 8 in the letter, Paul ends chapter 8 with a glorious and grand, really kind of crescendo of praise to God in Christ, and that, that there is no separation from the love of God in Christ for those who are in him because of everything God has done for us. It's this real dynamic, um, flourishing expression of just the security of God's love for us and how great God's love for us in Jesus actually is. And by the time you get to the end of that section, Paul has made essentially two really big points. In chapters 1 through 4, it made the point that mankind are put into a right relationship with God by faith in Jesus the Messiah, not by keeping the Torah, and this is the way God always intended it to be. Point two in chapters 5 through 8, and mankind is actually sanctified, made holy, and now learns to live a righteous life the same way, by faith in Jesus as Messiah and the power of the Spirit, not by Torah there either. So both justification and sanctification is in Christ and by faith through the Spirit. Well, that raises a really important question. Well, what about all the Jews who haven't believed? And that may not feel like a pressing question to us today, but in Paul's day, it was a very pressing, real personal and pastoral question, because the majority of the people who were coming into Christ in Paul's day and age were Gentiles. And in the church at Rome itself, you had plenty of Gentiles, probably a larger percentage of Gentiles, 
then Jews. And you had tension between those groups. So this is a really, really pressing both theological and pastoral question that Paul takes up in chapters 9 through 11. It feels like a very hard shift at the end of chapter 8 because we've been dealing with really the basis for our justification, our, the basis for being the people of God, the basis for living as the people of God in this world, faith, the Spirit, Messiah, and all of that. Then we get this hard shift in chapter 9 that can kind of jolt us. And because of that, some people have actually uh, almost suggested that chapters 9 through 11 sort of interrupts Paul's thought, but it doesn't. In some ways, that's at the heart of his thought because of the emphasis on worshiping God with one voice together that he's going to culminate with in chapter 15. And so this is a really important moment in the letter of Romans, even though it's a very jolting shift, and even though chapters 9 through 11 is a very difficult section of Romans. So here's the way the third part of the letter works. Chapters 9 through 11 really is answering this question. In view of the large-scale Jewish rejection of Jesus as Messiah, well, what about God's righteousness to them? Like, God made a promise to them, and he promised to save them. And so what about God's saving justice in view of all the Jews who have rejected Jesus' Messiah? Does their rejection of Jesus' Messiah nullify God's faithfulness to his promises to them as their, his people? Right? That's the question. That's the subject of Romans 9 through 11. And Paul's answer in brief is, no, indeed. No, it doesn't. In fact, he goes on in chapter 9 to say, even with Abraham, it wasn't all the descendants of Abraham who were the seed of promise. In fact, throughout the history of Israel, God only worked really with and through a faithful remnant. And it's the same Paul says now in the days of the Messiah. Any Jews who have been rejected in the sense of not being a part of God's people because they've rejected the Messiah can easily become part of now God's new covenant people in Jesus' Messiah simply by putting their faith in Jesus as Messiah. That's the whole point of this section. And not only that, any Gentiles who are now on the family tree in Romans chapter 11 can actually be cut off that tree simply by ceasing to be faithful to Jesus as Messiah. And so it still comes down to the same way. God has one family tree. That family tree is composed of Jews and Gentiles. And everyone is on that tree by virtue of their faith in the Messiah and for no other reason. And so that's where chapter 11 ends is this picture of God's family tree, if you will. And he only has one. And a Jew who's off can get on by putting their faith in the Messiah. A Gentile who's on the family tree can be cut off the family tree by ceasing to be faithful to the Messiah. It's all about faithfulness to the Messiah. And so in keeping with what Paul has said earlier in the letter, God's family, God's people is formed simply through faith in the Messiah. And it's composed of all different people, Jew and Gentile alike simply on the basis of that faith. And thus we finally arrive at the fourth and final part of the letter, chapters 12 through 16, where Paul calls the Romans and by extension us to live together as the people of God in shalom, in peace and harmony, to worship God together with one voice. And so all of the theological argumentation and explanation of chapters 1 through 11 has been leading up to this moment in the letter where Paul says, so since you're the people of God, 
And since that is based on the mercy of God by virtue of faith in Jesus, not by your own performance, not by your own righteousness and your goodness, but simply by the saving mercy of God, since that's the case, then learn to live together as the people of God. Welcome each other, even though you're, you have different heritage, different background, different customs, different ways of doing things. All those secondary differences no longer matter. Worship God together as one people in Christ. In fact, chapter 14 here in this section really brings it all to its sharpest point where he basically says, not to oversimplify, but basically what he says is, look, if you're a Jewish believer or maybe even a Gentile believer who's joined with the Jewish believers and you're like, no way, I'm not going to worship with those Gentile believers because they eat bacon and ham. And Paul says, well, guess what? Bacon and ham doesn't matter. And so if you're a Jewish believer and you look down on them because of that, guess what? Paul says, doesn't matter. Learn to love them and welcome each other. If you're a Gentile believer, don't flaunt the fact that you eat bacon and ham. In fact, don't serve it when you're together with your Jewish brethren who don't, because of their longstanding history, don't eat bacon and ham. It's a very sharp point, and yes, I'm oversimplifying it by talking about bacon and ham, but what Paul is saying is learning to live together as the people of God uh, must work its way out in the concrete details of our life, which means we need to humble ourselves and not look down on each other, not have a superiority complex, not flaunt our freedom towards each other, but we need to actually worship God together with one voice. And that's where Paul lands in chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Coming out of that, Paul wraps up some of his travel plans and some of his goals for using the church there in Rome as a base of operations for his ministry. And then he ends the letter by all sorts of greetings to all different people in the letter, which is fascinating since he's never been there. Um, he knows some people that he's met along the way, Aquila and Priscilla, and others he's met in various parts of the empire who are now living in Rome. And so he's met some of them, but he's never been there. And he has all these massive greetings, which is just a way of establishing rapport and connection. And in the course of doing that, he seems to mention several different house churches. And it's those house churches that he wants to learn to all cooperate together, worship together, eat together as an expression of their unity and their oneness in Jesus Christ. And that, in a big picture way, is what the book of Romans is all about. So hopefully that gives you at least a lay of the land, a little bit of a map, so as you read it, you kind of understand the flow of thought, understand what's going on in each section of the letter. Now, what I want to do here in the final few minutes of this recording is just give some tips for reading Romans well. And the first is this. Ever since the Protestant Reformation, it has been pretty common, particularly in American churches, to read the book of Romans as if it were almost exclusively about our own individual personal salvation. In this approach to the letter, Romans emphasizes justification by faith because Jews were teaching justification by works. And thus Romans is predominantly about individual salvation and justification by faith. It's about how a person gets saved about how a person becomes right with God. Now, Romans has plenty to say about that, obviously, right, about being justified by faith in Jesus, and that's going to be experienced personally and individually. And so we don't want to lose sight of 
really the implications of Romans for the sake of living on the basis of grace, for the sake of the assurance of our salvation being based on all that. And so that's an important emphasis. However, to make Romans exclusively about that is really to miss the emphasis on the people of God that clearly is at the heart of this letter, uh, based on where the letter ends in trying to unite those churches together and worshiping God together with one voice. In fact, when we emphasize the individual over against the people of God, that is what leads to confusion, I think, about Romans 9 through 11. Both confusion about its place in the letter and even confusion about its overall theological emphasis. When we take the letter to be about how you get saved, Romans 9 through 11 doesn't feel like it fits directly into the letter. And then we have to figure out what to do with it. And we come up with whole doctrines about, oh, certain individuals are predestined to be saved and others aren't, or things like that. That's because we've missed the emphasis on the people of God in this letter. And so we need to make sure we don't lose sight of the people of God element in reading this letter. So in order to read Romans well, one of the first things we need to do is keep the people of God at the forefront. Don't make the primary thing your own personal salvation. Obviously, that's important, and we enter into the people of God individually, but it's not the main point of the argument of Romans. A second tip is this, that when reading Romans, be sure you keep in mind that the word works is usually short for works of the law, which refers to the Old Testament law, the Torah. It's not necessarily about people trying to earn their salvation by keeping the Old Testament. So the contrast between faith and works is not a contrast between earning and not earning, or between effort and non-effort. It's a contrast really between the necessity of or the advantage of living by the old covenant, Torah, and living by faith in the Messiah to be right with God. So we want to make sure we don't overgeneralize the word works and just turn it into moral living, moral effort, moral law in general. No, it refers to specifically the old covenant. And Paul's point is that the old covenant is no longer the line of demarcation for the people of God. That now is marked out by faith in Messiah. And that leads to a third tip for actually reading Romans well. And that has to do with really the historical framework or the chronological framework, if you will. In other words, in order to read Romans well, we need to keep in mind what time it is. Here's what I mean by that. Much of what is said about the people of God and works of the law in Romans reflects the fact that Jesus and the Spirit has ushered in a brand new era in what God is doing in the world. This new era is the fulfillment of the very promise to Abraham, and so it is the culmination of the story that began clear back in Genesis chapter 12. And so we've moved forward in time, and so much of the argument is a historical argument, a chronological argument, that uh, if you are trying to live on the basis of Torah, if you're trying to mark out the people of God on the basis of Torah, you're going backwards in time. You're trying to reverse time. You're trying to live in a different era in an age whose day is over and whose job is done. A new age has come. Now we live in the day of Messiah and the Spirit. And the Messiah and the Spirit is what makes us as the people of God now 
really the fulfillment of everything God intended when he first gave the law. We actually now can live out the very righteousness that the law intended by the power of the Spirit. And one last reading tip is this. As you read, pay attention to the question and answer style of writing that is so prevalent in parts of Romans. It really helps us follow the train of thought when we realize Paul's asking a question, and then he's answering a question. He's asking a question, then he's answering a question. Not all throughout Romans, but in large sections of the letter, that's exactly what's going on. And so if we want to understand the answer, it really helps to make sure we pay attention to the question. So as you read, pay attention to the question and answer approach that Paul uses oftentimes, much of the time, throughout the book of Romans. All right, that should get you up to speed on kind of how the book is constructed and some tips to make sure we read the book well. So we're reading it the way it was originally intended to be read, reading it in its original context so that we can actually understand the book the way Paul wants us to.